What if you could predict the future? That'd be a cool trick, right? What if you could predict the future? Well, one company seems to be able to do just that. Recorded Future is a software company that, according to Kale Wiseman of BusinessInsider.com, does this. They can create actionable data points about what is happening or what is going to happen in the world by analyzing all of the text on the open web. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the interview, Wiseman watched as the CEO of Recorded Future, Christopher Alberg, did a search with his software. And what he did was he punched in the word protest in the software, and immediately this live map of the entire world came up. And it showed all the places in the world where there was activity about protest. And around a set of places in Nigeria, there was a lot of activity. And so he was able to predict that the next protest was probably going to pop up right there in that area of Nigeria. So they can predict the future if they have the information from the Internet. But what if you don't have any information from the Internet? Can you still just predict the future no matter what? Well, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there are more than 300 prophecies that Jesus perfectly fulfilled. And in the New Testament, there are more prophecies, namely that Jesus is coming again, that will also be perfectly fulfilled. So God has set some aspects of the future that we're not predicting. We are simply proclaiming what he has already done. But outside of of biblical planning here, outside of God's biblical plan, can anybody just predict the future? Just, Just predict the random events of life out of thin air. Well, this is what the wisest man who ever lived on earth said. The fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen. And who can tell him what will come after him? Wise words from Solomon. See, we can make guesses and we can make plans. And sometimes our guesses may turn out to be right. Sometimes our plans may work out just like we planned them to be. But we still don't have the ability to truly and perfectly predict the future. Now, let me ask the question in a different way. Can we shape the future? Can we influence the future? Can we impact the future? Well, it's not really an issue of can, right? We will impact the future. The choices and the decisions that we make today are going to affect the generations to come. So, what kind of choices are you making in your life? You know, sometimes we hear that question and we begin to think, oh, well, let me think about my family or my career or my education or my finances. Let me think about my politicians, you know. Because we want to make good decisions. We want to make good choices. We want our kids and our grandkids to make good decisions and good choices. And we want our politicians to make good decisions and good choices. But it is possible to make very poor decisions thinking we are making very good decisions. How would that happen? Well, it would happen because we're using the wrong motivation for our decision-making. Let me put it another way. Do you love the gospel? Jesus Christ died in your place. Do you love that? 
Now, if I were to ask for a show of hands, I'm thinking in this room we might get a lot of hands raised in the air. Yeah, man, I, I love the gospel. If I were to pass out ballots that said check yes or check no, I'm sure I get a lot of ballots back that would say yes. But let's say there's no ballots and there's no hand raising, and in the deepest part of your life, looking back over the last seven days, Jesus died in your place. Do you love that? Do you love the gospel? You see, the gospel matters. See, the future of your family is wrapped up in the gospel. The future of your finances is wrapped up in the gospel. The future of your country, the future of this church, the future of everything is wrapped up in the gospel. How? Well, because at any moment, Jesus could return. So the gospel is everything. Everything filters back to the gospel. Everything directs back to the gospel. Everything is heading toward the good news and the return of Christ. So if we are going to call ourselves Christians, then the most important influence over our choices and our decisions needs to be the gospel. The gospel should drive how we make decisions, drive how we make choices. And men, the reality is, according to all that we read in the Bible, we are supposed to be leading the way when it comes to that gospel influence. And not just men, but especially Christian fathers are supposed to be leading the way when it comes to the influence of the gospel in our homes, in our church, in our community, and in the world. Look with me at Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 2. Paul writes, Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love and in perseverance. Just a few sentences back, Paul had been writing to Titus, and he told him, look, there's going to be false teachers and false prophets. In the early church, there were men who had personal, selfish agendas. They were agendas that had nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus. They would preach and they would teach and they would lead in such a way that they would have personal gain. Paul says their ultimate goal was not to make people hear about Jesus. Their ultimate goal was some personal preference or to, or to have things done the way they wanted them to be done. In fact, according to how Paul described them, these folks were causing arguments between husbands and wives that had nothing to do with the gospel. They were causing arguments in the church between people over things that had nothing to do with the gospel. But Paul, he, he loved the church, and he knew that there was nothing new under the sun. That's why we're reading this today. The, the Bible is given to us for life today. And today things are not any different. Conflict in the home, conflict in the church, always centers back to agendas that have nothing to do with the gospel because the gospel does not create conflict between believers. The gospel brings joy. The gospel brings unity. So Paul loves the church enough to write to Titus and say, look, I need to let you know there's going to be some wrong agendas out there but he also writes to them about the right agenda. He wants them to understand there's a, there's a right agenda for the church and for your home and for your family. And what is that right agenda? Well, the right agenda is the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> see, see, the agenda is always the gospel. The agenda is always Jesus. We never turn from the left or the right, but we stay focused on the gospel. Imagine this week you go to the eye doctor. 
And you go into the eye doctor and he examines you and he finds out that you've got some kind of rare optical illness that's caused by watching way too much TV. Now he doesn't give you any medicine and he doesn't treat you. What he does is he sends you home with a box of DVDs. Yeah, six DVDs, an hour long, each one of them. And it's an hour long of instructional video on how to take better care of your eyes. Now, didn't that sound a little bit strange? Wasn't the TV the thing that caused the problem to begin with? That sounds like a strange way to heal your eyes. But if we're not careful, we'll do the exact same thing in the church. We will fund and we will promote and we will fuel things that are good things, but they're not things that actually help people towards spiritual health. In other words, they're good things, but they're not the gospel. And what people need the most is the gospel. The future is the gospel. So if we're looking at a church or maybe even if we're looking at a Christian home, and we're looking for health, what that home and what that church will need is more gospel and more Jesus lived out inside. This is what Peter wrote, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. I mean, he didn't leave anything out, right? All things pertaining to life. I mean, that kind of covers everything, right? Everything you need for your spiritual life, you will find in Jesus. Everything that you will need to make good choices and good decisions, you will find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the hope and all the peace and all the love and all the mercy that you really want, you will find in Jesus Christ. The gospel is always the center of everything. So if you find a church that is not healthy, you will find a church that is not focused on the gospel. You will find a church that's not focused on Jesus. You see, Jesus Christ is not just our Savior. He is our life. He's not just Sunday morning. He's all the mornings. There's never a time we take a break from following Jesus or we stop thinking about the gospel. So how do we move in that direction? How do we move towards spiritual health? How do we start making decisions based on the gospel? Making our choices based on the gospel? Well, men, Paul says it begins with us. Or more precisely, it begins with the older men. Well, who are the older men? It's going to be really cute next week when I'm doing older women, right? So who are the older men? Well, all the way back in 300 B.C., it kind of got marked that an older man is somebody about 60 or older. That's usually the the frame that we've always worked with, about 60 or older. But around the time of Paul, it even dropped down to around 50. So the idea was 50 or older would be an, an older man. But the general idea here behind older men is someone who hasn't just been out of his mom and dad's house for a few years. You know, it's someone who's had some life experience. It's someone who's, who's lived for a while. They've experienced some things. They're the kind of man that people turn to for trust and for advice and for counsel. And what are men like that supposed to be like? Well, Paul writes it down for Titus. First, he says they're supposed to be temperate. The word temperate means sober. And when we hear sober, we think of, of not being drunk. And that's exactly what this word means. But it actually means more than that. It means not being drunk on anything. It means not being ruled 
by having an appetite and a desire for the things of the world. Ruled, meaning that when it comes to your decisions, when it comes to your choices in life, you don't make those choices and those decisions based on an excessive or an extravagant appetite for money or for drugs or for alcohol or for physical intimacy or for cars or for food or motorcycles or trucks or boats or just about anything else in the world. It means that we do not let the things of the world become our biggest and deepest appetite. Ruled meaning that we don't push our spiritual life away and we don't push our family life away so that we can make more room for work or more room for sporting events or more room for travel or more room for for golf or tennis or hunting or fishing or, or television or internet or just about anything else. We aren't ruled by the things of the world. Rather we're ruled by a desire to honor God. To be temperate means that nothing in his life pushes God down farther on the to-do list. That God is important to him. Men, let me tell you something. If the things of this world are important to you, it shows. And let me tell you something else. If the things of God are not important to you, it shows. There's no way around it. William Hendrickson says this, His pleasures are not primarily those of the senses, but those of the soul. There's there's this understanding that everything is deeper than the game, and everything is deeper than the weekend away, and everything is deeper than the car. Everything goes back to the very soul. A temperate man gets that. So we have here a temperate man as someone who strives to make sure he's not letting the world become his greatest appetite. Now, does that sound like something that only a man should do? Or does that sound like something that all of us should do? Should we all be pursuing a little more temperance in our lives? Next, Paul says he needs to be dignified. Now, this doesn't mean that you have perfect hair and nicely pressed clothes and well-shined shoes and a, a stately look on your face like a presidential statue before breakfast every morning, all right? That's not the idea of dignified. The word here for dignified means that he's serious about God and he's serious about life. A dignified man knows how to laugh. He knows how to have fun. But he knows that everything in life is not a joke. He understands what it means to be serious about the things of God. He understands what it means to be serious about life. He knows how to act and how to function in a hospital room or at a funeral. He knows how to be serious or thoughtful in a conversation with his wife or his kids or his grandkids. He has a positive influence on other people when it comes to things about the gospel, when it comes to things about Christianity. In short, he honors God and he helps other people. Paul wrote about this dignified attitude to the church at Philippi. One Bible phrase puts it this way. I kind of like it. Philippians 4.8. Summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly. Things to praise and not things to curse. That's a pretty good verse with our question earlier about being in the world and of the world and how we're supposed to be engaged in our world. It's a pretty good advice right there. So filling your minds with things that are true and gracious, 
so that your attitude will be true and gracious. Does that sound like something that only men need to do? Or does that sound like something that we all should be pursuing? Should we all be a little more dignified in our lives? Next, Paul says he needs to be sensible. He isn't hasty or rash with decisions. He knows how to say no, and he knows when to say no. He knows when to speak up when he has the answer and when he has good advice, but he also is humble enough to know when to keep his mouth shut and when not to speak up if he really doesn't know the answer. You know, we, we laugh about it in our southern culture especially, but if you're the kind of man that thinks you know everything, you are not sensible, at least not according to the Bible. Knowing everything is the opposite of what it means to follow Jesus. He knows everything we do not. This man is not difficult, he's not stubborn, he's not set in his ways, but a sensible man keeps his mind underneath the Bible. And he lets the Bible be the main source that leads him toward his attitude and his opinions. I cannot stress that enough. If we are going to be Christian men, the Bible needs to feed our opinions. So how is the Bible feeding our opinions, men? Or are we just pulling from anywhere and everywhere we can? So, we're not supposed to be difficult or stubborn. We're supposed to be led by the Bible. Does that sound like something only men need to do? Or do all of us need to pursue more sensibility, so to speak, in our lives? Next thing Paul gives is three things they need to be sound in. Sound or healthy. I might put it this way. Generally speaking, these are three things that anybody should be able to pretty easily see in any man who's going to call himself a Christian. These are the three healthy things. The first one, Paul says, is he needs to be sound in faith. Sound in faith. He has a good dose of sound doctrine. He understands the message of the Bible, and he lives out to the best of his ability the message of the Bible and how he thinks and how he acts and in how he talks. He doesn't turn to his own understanding, but he keeps leaning on the everlasting understanding of the Scriptures. He doesn't fight for his traditions, nor does he fight for the newest fads. His only fighting, his only striving is for the gospel. His goal is to make the gospel the most important thing, first and most in his home, first and most in the church, and first and most anywhere that he may go. The gospel is his focus. In short... A man who is sound in faith has learned to trust in God. I love how one commentator put it. Older men have learned that the doctrine of God can be trusted in every way. They do not question his wisdom or power or love, and they do not lose trust in his goodness and his grace or lose confidence in his divine plan and his divine wisdom. They do not doubt the truth or sufficiency of his word or waver in their divinely assured hope that his sovereign plan will be fulfilled. In other words, when things fall apart at work, they trust God. When things get really difficult at home, they trust God. When tragedy invades their lives, they trust God. Have we not seen that pretty boldly and with tons of grace displayed from our brothers and sisters at Emmanuel AME Church this week? that in the middle of tragedy, the trust in God doesn't disappear. Men, that's how we need to live. 
If we're going to be in a hospital room, our trust in God should never leave that room, no matter what the news is. If we're going to be in a difficult moment, in a difficult place where everything is going wrong, that is not when we say, I can't trust God here. That is the moment that we say, I can trust God here. The gospel is not for Sundays. The gospel is for all the time. Shortly after losing his children in a shipwreck, Horatio Spafford wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Why was his soul well after losing his children? His soul was well because he knew he could trust God. His soul was well because he knew the gospel was and is the future. So there's no turning away. There's only trusting. So trusting in the mercy, trusting in the grace, trusting in the sovereignty of God. Does that sound like things that only men need to do? Or does that sound like something we all need to pursue? Do we not all need to be a little more sound in our faith? Next, Paul says we need to be sound and healthy in love. You may have seen this floating around on social media the last few months. It's a really powerful teaching tool. You take 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 6, and you put your name into the passage. I've done this a little bit in a helpful way, hopefully, a little paraphrase that I've gathered from several translations and and added my two cents to try to help us think through it. It goes like this. I am patient and kind. I am not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. I do not demand my own way. I am not easily irritated and I do not hold grudges. I do not rejoice when God's just ways are ignored or mocked. I rejoice when God's truth wins out. I do not give up and I do not blow off my faith. I look for hope and I hang on to my salvation no matter how bad the circumstance may be. So how sound in love are you? Based on those words. That's heavy, right? But, but it's not impossible. And we shouldn't look at that and go, oh, I could never do that in a million years. Nah, you can't do it perfectly. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be pursuing it. Because the pursuit is what God will bless. We can't be perfect. But to sit around and go, well, I can't do it. Or, well, I don't know where to start. Or, well, I don't know how. That's the opposite of what it means to follow Jesus. We pursue even in love. So you can have sound faith. But if you don't have sound love, you kind of cancel out your sound faith, right? You, you may have the, the greatest theology in the world, but if you're a jerk, nobody's going to listen to your theology, you know? But the opposite can also be true. You can be really, really sound in love, but without being sound in faith, guess what? You're leading people to love you, not to love God. See, sound in faith and sound in love, they, they work together. They don't distract people from God. They draw people to God. I probably should say at this point that there's that old phrase that would be the opposite of being an older man with sound love. 
And that would be a grumpy old man, right? That's out there. Stephen Cole says this, As you grow older, rather than becoming more grouchy or hard to live with, you should become more loving. Rather than becoming more intolerant and hardened towards others, you should become more gracious and compassionate. So men, how are we doing at those things? As we grow older, are we becoming more grouchy and hard to live with, or are we becoming more compassionate? Are we growing older and loving God more and loving his truth more and trusting him more and being more compassionate to other people, or are we growing more grouchy and grumpy? That's a hard question, but it's a question we need to be asking. Because, see, the gospel calls us to be loving and gracious and compassionate. Now, does that sound like something that only men need? Or do we all need to be a little more sound in love? Next, Paul says sound in perseverance. This kind of man doesn't throw his fist up at heaven every time something doesn't work out the way he wants to and say, God, why didn't, why didn't this happen the way I wanted it to? No, rather he, he hangs in there and he keeps trusting God and he keeps putting his hope in God even in the middle of the tough times. One commentator put it this way, the older man is one who has learned to graciously live with such difficulties, listen to these difficulties, as physical weakness, loneliness, and being misunderstood and unappreciated. All right, come on, guys. Ever been there? Unappreciated. I'll say I have this week. More so around my house when I was trying to cut the grass than anything else. Unappreciated. Misunderstood, lonely, physical weakness. We've been there, right? An older man is able to move past that. Next he writes, He does not lose heart when things do not turn out the way he had hoped and expected, but has the perfect confidence that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Having confidence in God in the middle of difficulty. Does that sound like something that only men need to have? Or do all of us need to be a little more sound in our perseverance? Think about those three healthy things. A a sound faith, a sound love, and a sound perseverance. All of those things start on the inside. They don't start on the outside. They start on the inside. And then they're seen on the outside. The results of what's happening on the inside is seen on the outside. So what kind of faith, what kind of sound faith does a man need marinating inside of him? John Piper puts it this way. Nothing glorifies God more than maintaining our stability and joy when we lose everything but God. <laughs> Read that again. Nothing glorifies God more than maintaining our stability and joy when we lose everything but God. Did you catch that? We could lose every single thing in life, but if we have God, we have everything. So we're still stable and we still have joy. If the house burns down and the cars are gone, If our children are swept away in a storm like Job, we would still say, you know what? Whatever I had, I have from God. Blessed be the name of the Lord, no matter what. You see, a sound faith tells a person on the inside that the very definition of everything is God. And so if they have 
God, they have everything. Sound in faith and sound in love. What kind of love does a man need marinating on the inside of him? Paul wrote this to the church at Galatia. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, a sound love tells a person on the inside that the greatest definition and expression of love is Jesus Christ. And so they look to no one else when it comes to how to love their wife or their husband or their children or their grandchildren. See, these are not things that are just for men. They are for all of us. Being sound in faith and being sound in love is what we all need marinating inside of us. And the third one he gives is what? Sound in perseverance. What does a man need marinating inside of him when it comes to to being patient and enduring? I love what John Benton says. What brings patient endurance into a man's character, which perseveres in doing good no matter how tough the circumstances, when his eyes are set not ultimately on this world, but on the life to come. That's it. Gentlemen, that's it. You see, that is talking about the life to come. What's the life to come? The future. What's the future? The gospel. See, nothing changes course here. Everything about the truth of the gospel points us to the gospel. Points us right back to Jesus. All of the hope and all of the peace and all of the joy and all of the contentment that we need and we need to give our kids and our grandkids, all of it is found in Jesus. It is not found in your job. And it is not found in your favorite sports team. It's not found in your family. It's not even found in our country. It is found in the gospel. It's found in Jesus. Your children, your wife, your grandkids, they need the gospel. It is the future. Nothing else is the future. Yes, there's things they will need to do in life. They need to go to school and get a job and and cut grass. Yeah, all that's there. But the future is the gospel. That's what we need to give most, first and most. The gospel is the future. So, if all the hope and all the peace and all the joy and all the contentment and all the love that your families need are all found in the gospel, are all found in Jesus, then here's a question for us dads on Father's Day. Does your family get the gospel from you? Is your family seeing in your life hope and peace and joy that they know will last forever? Or are they just seeing a grumpy whole man? Or are they seeing a man that worships work more than God? Or worships sports more than God? Or worships TV more than God? Or anything else more than God? Horatio Spafford never celebrated Father's Day. You know why? It didn't exist. The first Father's Day wasn't held until 1908, 20 years after Spafford had died. But at the age of 45... He wrote a hymn that pretty much shows him to be the spitting image of what Paul was describing as an older man. His daughters, his little girls, they perished at sea. Anna was 11. Maggie was 9. 
Bessie was seven, and Tanetta was two. They didn't live to see the words that their dad wrote about their death, but they didn't have to. You see, long before he wrote those words down, he was living those words out with his life. And so I imagine, just like we would find from Reverend Pickney's children, if we asked them today, that Horatio Spafford's children would not in any way, shape, or form be surprised to know that their father would write a song about the deep truths of the gospel. In fact, they would expect it because with their own little eyes, they saw that their dad was temperate and he was dignified and he was sensible and he was sound in faith and love and perseverance. So sound that upon looking at the spot where his daughters died, he wrote words like this. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Fathers, the future is the gospel. So let us love the gospel and let us give our families the gospel. Let's pray.